Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We have a balanced menu with laughter for dessert today. Comedian Jim Norton will discuss censorship, flat earthers, and our mutual admiration for Joan Rivers. Atlanta-based entrepreneur and advocate Kiana Upton is realizing her dream of having you dine at her cafe inside a greenhouse where food justice is central to the mission. Later this hour, she'll tell us about Nourish Botanica. First, the 2018 viral hit song by Donald Glover, This is America, was a razor-sharp commentary on our society's issues. Toting a similar title, Genevieve Gagnard's new exhibit, This is America, The Unsettling Contradictions in American Identity, unravels some of those ongoing issues. The multidisciplinary artist's first solo show will be at the Atlantic Contemporary, February 12th through May 15th. Genevieve Gagnard joins us now via Zoom with curator Karen Comer-Lowe. Welcome to City Lights. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Genevieve, let's start with the title. Did Donald Glover inspire it? Well, you know, Donald Glover has been inspiring a lot of shows and beyond with that title. I think it it shook us to the core in a way. You know, this was a title that Karen and I kind of came up with together. So I think Karen can probably unpack where she was kind of coming from a little bit more. Well, yes, it absolutely was inspired by Childish Gambino, i.e. Donald Glover. And it addresses serious issues that we face in this country. And I chose it because I thought it aligned with Genevieve's work and what she's addressing through her practice. Genevieve, most of your photographs are self-portraits. When did you become interested in photography? 
Well, I think I've always kind of been drawn to imagery as a lot of us are, but it wasn't until a bit later, you know, I went to cooking school after high school for two years for baking and pastry, just a little side note there. And I ended up meeting a professor there, a, a chef that kind of inspired me to pursue my interest in art. So after I finished my associate's degree there, I came back home, signed up at the community college in near my town and didn't really, I knew I wanted to take art classes, but I kind of knew for sure I wanted to take a black and white photography class. I don't know where that drive came from. I, I remember my dad taking a summer course in photography. So maybe that sparked some of the interest, but the first photo class that I sat in on, the professor gave a slideshow and I just kind of had this feeling like this was the medium that I could really speak in. You are biracial. You identify as black, but are, quote, white passing. How has that affected the way you identify and how the world sees you? Well, there's a lot of us out there kind of navigating life in a way that we're not easily put into a box for other folks. So the way it affects me isn't kind of something I can, for me, put into a sentence or words. And that's why my art has been this kind of beautiful tool for me to work through those things and the complexities of it. And at the same time, be able to connect with other people through the art. You know, once they view the art, the conversations that kind of unfold after that, I often say that the work that I'm making isn't telling you answers. It's kind of asking more questions. Wow. So in what way does your racial identity inform your artwork? I mean, once you look at it, I think it's everything. I'm really interested in owning both sides of my story. And so I don't really tiptoe around those things. When President Obama was elected, did you feel further validated or seen because he's biracial? I didn't really think of him as biracial. I thought of him as our first Black president. <laughs> but I mean, I think we're affected. Yes, pleased. Yes. <laughs> but I didn't really separate it. Karen, how did you encounter Genevieve's work? Well, back in 2017, I went to this art fair in New Orleans called Prospect. Prospect 4, actually, was the particular installation. And th during that art fair, that's when I experienced an installation by Genevieve. And I was kind of sitting in the midst of it, observing everything. And, and that's when I learned about her art. And I was able to meet her, talk to her. I was so moved by what I saw. I told her at that time, I said, one day we're going to work together. I don't know what it will be or when it will be, but 
I want to show your work. And we've been kind of talking since then, you know, on various outlets, just about various things. But that was the first encounter for me. Hmm. And would you describe some of Genevieve's works on viewing this show? So for this exhibition, I was able to pull existing works and create a new narrative with those existing works. And so I'm excited that we will have an installation, some mixed media pieces, collage work, as well as photographs by Genevieve Gennard. And this is her first solo presentation in the Atlanta area. Of course, she's shown all over the world, but I'm excited that we will have this first, her first solo exhibition here at this time with all of the various kinds of works that she makes. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with curator Karen Comer-Lowe and multidisciplinary artist Genevieve Gagnard. Genevieve, what are some of the unsettling contradictions in this show? I think unsettling maybe kind of finds its way through all of the work that I create. I'm able to combine truth, a little bit of humor and beauty and kind of a rawness to the work that feels personal, but universal. And over the years, I've kind of really honed in on specific materials that lend themselves to, you know, help describe the things that I'm interested in. I'm often pulling from vintage or historical magazines for my collage work specifically to kind of talk about how we like to say we've come so far, but I'm able to kind of comment on things happening today with imagery from the past that kind of align as if we haven't really come that far. Yeah, there's kind of a stunning photograph of you dressed up like Scarlett O'Hara holding an American flag. Mm. Yeah, so that image, you know, with the photographs, I really kind of think about all of the photographs as a whole, even though they're made in as different bodies of work, I'm thinking about how we navigate through the world, how others see us. And so when I say I identify as a woman of color, but people see me as a white woman, I then put on these different costumes, characters, however you want to describe it, to kind of show the viewer just how easily any of us can kind of fold into these different parts of ourselves or, or some sort of uh, stereotype that others put on us. So that particular image that you're talking about, I really was thinking about if I lived in a, another time, almost mashing up like a person that was wearing that particular style clothing, would they be having that particular hair texture? And I'm kind of just allowed to juxtapose these things in a way to further ask questions. And, and you know, maybe, maybe f- people find these things unsettling, but unsettling in a way to further unpack one's own kind of stance on the issues that I'm kind of pointing on. Yeah, provocative. 
And how can shows such as this dismantle such stereotypes? Well, my hope is that I'm creating a space that a viewer can come in. I think of the environments as like almost these psychological spaces, but I'm using things that are nostalgic. So you feel like it's home. And so it kind of creates this safe space to unpack harder issues that, you know, until more recently, we really just haven't been able to sit down and talk about. And it's just been interesting to see how the work can be used as a tool to really work through these things. So like, it's, it's almost like the work kind of doubles as a mirror to the viewer to kind of check in with themselves, their stance on things. And some of us aren't always aware of how we're showing up, you know? Hmm. Indeed. In fact, you'd mentioned the safe space. Another theme in your work is your interest in people's homes and how they are designed. Yeah, I've always been curious by what people surround themselves with in their homes. And I grew up in a home that had lots of things around. So that's more my normal. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see where things repeat in other homes. And maybe over the years in this like unconscious way, I've kind of cataloged the similarities and differences because a lot of the installations are never an exact replica of something I've seen. And even for my photographs, I'm not usually making sets for my photographs. I'm going into people's homes that I'm interested in figuring out like a character that could play off of that setting. I think Genevieve is such a brilliant artist and that's why I'm excited to work with her. You know, in her talking about the environments that she builds in these installations through the things, you know, that um, people have in their homes, you know, I think it's so interesting when you can look at some of these objects and items and what the, the messages that the things send to you, you know, um, in one of her installations, like the wallpaper was just shockingly racist. Oh my. <laughs> that way. And, and she told me it was from the 1970s and that was just, it was shocking to me, you know? And so when you're seeing these objects and items that actually existed, these aren't things that she made or imagined. They're from our history and recent history. How can wallpaper be shocking? Would you, I mean, shockingly racist. Can you describe it? You know, I, I use wallpaper as a main source of my practice and it's, most often vintage wallpaper. So I, I've seen a lot of wallpaper and I saw this one particular paper that is, that is the backdrop for this installation that will be on view. And I guess the shocking part more so is that the time period of it, but the, the imagery is kind of this antebellum scene, well to do family in a horse and buggy. And then you have the enslaved family oh. kind of looking up at them with like the oh. house in the background and maybe a steamboat. I can't remember, but and it's from the 1970s. Like yeah. that's what's just like, right. What? <laughs> you know, that was right. just oh. shocking. 
I remember thinking like, wow, this must be really old. And then as I'm like putting it in my cart and like reading the details on it, it says it's from the 1970s. And the shocking part is people still wanted to live with this right. imagery then, mm -hmm. you know? Well, we need art to help dismantle stereotypes. Stereotypes and racism, you know? Absolutely. I'm really excited about this exhibition. And I think that this is a perfect time to present Genevieve's work here in Atlanta. You know, we've had a lot that has happened in our recent history that addresses the ideas of stereotypes and, and race and, you know, the place of Black people in America. And I think that this show is an opportunity for people to come in and just think about some of these things through her work. And um, it's going to be exciting. Multidisciplinary artist Genevieve Gagnard and curator Karen Comer-Lowe. This is America, the unsettling contradictions in American identity is on view at the Atlanta Contemporary Museum through May 15th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, it's time for some laughter. We'll listen back to my conversation with the comedian Jim Norton. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Laughter is essential to our well-being. Studies have shown the relationship between laughter and good mental health. Comedian Jim Norton knows this well. When he joined me via Zoom last October, we discussed censorship, flat earthers, and our mutual admiration for Joan Rivers. Here, Norton explains why he started in comedy. It was honestly the only thing I ever wanted to do. And I, I wanted to be a lawyer at one point, but the Princeton University wouldn't accept me because I had dropped out of high school. So I said, <laughs> you know what? I have no education i'm driving a forklift and i said this is what i really want to do i left myself no backup plan on purpose because it forced me to be a good comic or i would have no way to make a living i read that richard pryor was an inspiration 
Well, he was my favorite comedian of all time. I imagine if he saw my act now, he would probably say, take my name out of your bio. Uh, he'd probably be slightly embarrassed that I love him so much. But he was the guy that made me want to do comedy. But I also, like, I'm obviously George Carlin, but I, I think the two most underrated comedians ever are Joan Rivers and Robert Klein. Like, people love them, but I think not as much as they should love them. Wow. Do you think Joan Rivers may be underrated because she was a woman in comedy at, at a time when there weren't many? I don't know. She was so ferocious and she was always writing. She was fearless. You know, she puts a lot of us to shame with the fact that she would say anything she wanted in the form of a, a joke. I saw her in the cutting room here in New York with an ex-girlfriend of mine. And we watched her for an hour and she was 80 at the time. And, you know, she had note cards on the stage on the floor and she went up there and she was a barbarian for an hour. And I mean, it was great. There was nothing off limits. It was cutting. It was funny. And, and I'm like, she's one of the all time greats and she doesn't get the credit she deserves. I haven't read this, but my feeling after watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is that she's the inspiration for it. Do you think so? Do you know, I've never seen the show. I, I'm so... Really? No, I'm really bad with updated. Like, you know, I, I have almost no time to, to get into a show. And so I would rather rewatch The Wire or The Sopranos, which is an annoying quality I have. I, I just rewatch things instead of taking a chance. I hear it's a great show, but I've never seen it. I'd be curious about your take on it as a professional comedian, and they seem to strike the right notes to, to get the tone down. And Rachel Brosnahan is fantastic, but I feel like I'm seeing Joan Rivers in it. So I hope we get to talk again, Jim, and maybe you will have watched it by then. Yeah, it's something, it's been on my radar. And, and again, I, I don't know where to watch anything. I'm so, I mean, I'm 53, but I handle a television like I'm 88. I mean, I'm so awful at finding out where something is, what time it is. But that's a show I've been wanting to watch because, again, it's about stand-up. And, and I've heard nothing but good stuff about it. Well, you could do worse than The Wire and The Sopranos. Yeah, but I'm also rewatching Lost, which I'm not proud to admit. I actually am going back for a Lost rewatch. I'm saying that and ashamed of myself. Many of us are grateful for those reliable platforms, especially having lived through the past 18 months. I was watching one of your stand-up routines. That's part of Netflix series, The Degenerates. This was your routine about flat earthers. Oh, yeah. And then I saw on YouTube, one of the comments said, there should be a reality show where flat earthers have to find the edge of the world. I know you watched the documentary on flat earthers. That's your routine. Would you watch that TV show as well? Not only would I watch it, I would become a flat earther so I could be in it. Uh, let's be honest. <laughs> Hollywood's not exactly calling me for a lot of stuff. So yeah, I would absolutely watch that. And that's a brilliant idea for a show. Like, hey, if you guys believe in this so much, here's a budget and a camera crew. Let's help you find the edge of the earth. That's a great idea for a show. There you go. So one of the things that you revealed in your flat earther routine 
really struck me because I thought it was a window into your humanity. Would you talk about why you think flat earth conspiracy theorists aren't harmful in the way of other conspiracy theorists? Oh, I, for those guys, I, I mean, I, I think it's an odd conspiracy, but I put it up there with the moon landing in the sense of they're not denying murder victims or they're not denying the pain of other people. Like, you know, a lot of these conspiracies are saying, like when you look at the Newtown or, or other 9-11, they're denying the agony of all of these families and the fact that all these people were murdered. Yeah, I think all conspiracy kind of comes from the same place in the brain, but I, I think the fact that they are denying these murdered kids or these, you know, almost 3,000 people who died on 9-11 is just, it's psychotic uh, to, to think that these, these families are faking it. Like to tell a family, these are crisis actors and you're faking it. I mean, I, I just, I can't wrap my head around that level of distrust. Mm-mm. In 2016, you were a guest on the show Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell, along with the feminist writer and activist Lindy West. And you debated in front of a live audience about censorship in comedy and if some things should not be the subject of jokes. Rape culture. A year later, 2017, victims of sexual harassment and assault reignited the phrase, Me Too. Jim, five years later, have your feelings changed about some topics being off-limits in comedy? No. It's funny. That, that wasn't even my joke we were debating. That was another comedian had done a joke, and it had kind of got out into the zeitgeist a little bit. So it was more the principle of what's okay to make fun of. And as a performer, you know, comedians have to deal with things through humor, but no one is telling Stephen King not to kill children in his books. No one is telling actors not to play slave owners, not to play slashers, not to play murderers or to play rapists. So for people to think that comedy is harmful when portraying someone committing a, a horrible act in seriousness could get you nominated for an award. I, I, I just reject the idea that comedians as performers should be limited in a way that any other form of the arts is not limited. Like, you know, people not liking things. You know, you look at the National Endowment of the Arts, there was a piece of art called Piss Christ, which was a crucifix in a jar of urine. Or there was a guy who painted the Virgin Mary out of, out of dung, right? It was like an artistic thing from Africa or something. And somebody didn't like it, so they went in and splashed paint on it. Because they objected to it, it offended their values, they splashed paint on it. And people really rallied against the guy who splashed paint on it, and they were right. So I think as a performer, any subject you want to touch is absolutely acceptable. All that matters is do you do it well or do you do it poorly? And I think that's all you should be judged on. Well, something you said in that conversation with Kamar Bell and Lindy West was very impressive to me because you made a point about context. And you mentioned Michael Richards and the fact that he said something terrible. He made a racist remark in anger versus 
making a joke within the context of trying to be funny, which is not to say that you condone racist jokes, but the idea that intention is a part of the equation and that people who are concerned about pushing the limits of good taste or what's proper may not be thinking about context. Well, you know what's interesting is you're right. The context is what matters. And I think as thinking people, like I feel like the whole country, everyone is just pretending. I mean, with with a lot of things. I think we're all just pretending. It's like watching 300 million people star in a play that no one has read the script for. And we, we watch something like a horror film. Everybody understands the context. Uh, this is a story. This is meant to bring out a certain emotion in me, which is fear, which is whatever. So when you're doing jokes, people are sitting down and they understand this is a comedian. The context is we're here to laugh at things. It could be silly, innocuous things. It could be horrendous things. Uh, but we're here to laugh and to kind of suspend disbelief for an hour. There might be some truth in it. There might be some wild exaggerations. Michael Richards, I think the difference was that people saw in a moment he was reacting angrily to a heckler. And I think anyone who's not pretending can honestly tell the difference between a person doing jokes and a person angrily reacting to a live moment. Hmm. You said comedy is not a cause, but a reaction to violence. Yes, or or horrible things. I I firmly believe that. that. That's profound. Well, it doesn't cause it because you never hear comedians getting credit for good behavior. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those things where people want to blame comedians for certain things. But I think that's such a cheap cop out and so dishonest. No, I don't believe any joke has ever caused a person to behave violently. And when you look at it, you know, you look at like uh, profilers and FBI agents who deal with murderers. And they say that when the media shows gunmen, and they read their manifestos and they give them like, you know, names like the Joker, they are contributing to it. Comedians have never been tagged with contributing to violence. And yet every time there's a shooter, the media will mention his name. They'll, they'll talk about his manifesto. They'll talk about his evil motives. So they're continuing to do it, knowing what the results are and they don't care. But yet this is the same culture that thinks comedians should be slapped for making jokes that are tasteless. It's just, it's insanity to me. Can I presume you're not saying that concerns about censorship should now target the media instead of comedy? <laughs> no, 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 no censorship. No, no, no. I don't believe in that at all. What I mean by that is that the press is knowingly doing doing something that personality profilers and FBI profilers have said, look, please don't do this because it does help create problems. But they're doing it because, again, it gets clicks and it gets people interested. It's not just a part of telling the story. They sensationalize the story because, again, it's a business. So that's the same culture that allows that to scold comedians. To me, the inconsistency in that is crazy. In your upcoming show here at the Atlanta Punchline, will you talk about the past year's adversities? Oh boy, yeah, I, I get it. But but again, and when I do it on stage, like you know, we're having a nice chat. But I really do keep it funny on stage. I, I don't sit there and lecture on stage. I mean, I talk about the vaccinations, uh, the anti-vaxxers, people getting their life ruined on social media, my own sex life. Like I do, kind of cover 
everything and uh, the hour has been it's been really a great time so far getting back on it was 15 oh. months i was going crazy yeah what did you do in quarantine i got fat that's what i did <laughs> <laughs> i literally couldn't stop shoving food into my face i was panic eating for 15 months it was horrible oh well this has been so enjoyable and and now that you're out and touring i don't suppose you'll be turning to food for comfort you'll just be eating healthy i hope so i mean because it's a hard one to stop because once i like you know once once you realize like god snacking is really fun again uh, it's kind of hard to put it down now that i'm doing gigs so now i'm just doing shows and i'm still getting fat so hopefully i can replace that with something maybe i'll find a woman who will you know decide to go out with me and that you know <laughs> so you know good luck <laughs> Comedian Jim Norton from our conversation this past fall. Coming up, Food for the Soul with Nourish Botanica's Kiana Upton, amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. Is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Atlanta artist, activist, and entrepreneur Kiana Upton is building a safe space for equity, justice, and collective well-being while you dine. Her new restaurant, Nourish Botanica, is also a greenhouse. Kiana's mission for Nourish Botanica is to bring black joy to life by putting food justice at the center of her restaurant's work. She joins me now via Zoom. Kiana Upton, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. This is such an honor. <laughs> I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. I am delighted to talk with you. Please tell us about the inspiration for creating Nourish Botanica. When did the dream start? I'm from the Virgin Islands by way of Stanley Terrace projects in South Florida. I think that that's where the seed of it started. But, you know, for years, I didn't know that this was ever going to happen or what I was going to do or my purpose or mission. I think that I bloomed personally, creatively, and my eyes were opened when I moved to Atlanta. Oh, wow. Yeah. When I moved to Atlanta in 2007, maybe five or six years after that, I began to meet a lot of farmers and I began to get the verbiage and the language and more of an understanding of the fact that I was, that I grew up in a food insecure community. And I didn't even know, I didn't even, you know, you don't even know these things. You're just kind of just going along with your life. That's kind of where the, the root of it started, but then it bloomed here in the creative community in Atlanta, wanting to provide not just a place for justice, but a place for art and creativity, which are all healing. Indeed. You mentioned meeting farmers. Where did you learn about gardening and botany? So I had a, a really good friend who was an artist who loved to cook, and I loved to cook as well, but I was just, you know, going to the regular grocery store. I had just moved to Old Fourth Ward. She lived in Old Fourth Ward, and one day she took me to were truly living well used to be in old fourth ward behind like a church and we went there and that was it for me <laughs> <laughs> i was just in love i'm caribbean so i love you know plants and plant life just as an aesthetic 
but to see, you know, black people actually growing them and handling them and, you know, we're able to sustain ourselves and eat from it was just, it was a new thing for me at the time. I mean, I was, this is in my twenties. And it's ironic, isn't it? Because the tradition of growing food and being expert gardeners has been with people of African descent for centuries. Yeah, it's it's telling, you know, and it's it's part of the work too. I'm really really intentional about using the words joy and healing and love and these words to so that people can return to this ancestral wisdom and see it in a way where it's fun. I think that a lot of our our predecessors like let's say my mother maybe and her her grandmother left those things because of not just the stigma but because they were torn from us. There's a lot of trauma that's related to our relationship with land. And they internalized that and passed down sort of a shame. Like it's sort of like, a, oh, why would you want to be playing in the dirt? And so <laughs> luckily, especially, there's been a really huge resurgence this past five to seven years where Black people and young people, whatever race, were returning to land. And it's really beautiful. It is. What will be some of the offerings and creative dishes <laughs> on your menu? Ooh, so there's so much. We're, we're building out Nourish Botanica in phases. You know, we do have our space and we, we raise a good chunk of money, but most of that is going into building out the first phase, which is going to be the plant and flower shop offering. So we're going to launch that really soon. <laughs> I'll be announcing that really soon. From there is when we're going to do the Botanica Bar, which will be tea and drinks and herbal concoctions, mostly things that are focused on supporting anxiety and addiction issues. So those would be like adaptogens and nervines. People are familiar with ashwagandha, holy basil, milky oat. So we're going to be doing some really beautiful concoctions and drinks with that. And the final stage will be the, the restaurant eatery. I still can't believe sometimes that I'm building a restaurant. So eatery sounds a little bit more <laughs> bite-sized in my mouth, but we don't have a full menu, but I'll tell you that again, it's going to be a lot of edible flowers, Caribbean and Southern. So plantains, I love plantains, beet, hummus, mm. black eyed peas. You know, we want to make it comfort food that's relatable, but we're not going to reinvent the wheel too much as far as Southern comfort food, because I think that they've done their, it's amazing, <laughs> but it is going to be plant-based. Tell us please about Kiki, the mobile <laughs> botanical bar. You hinted at it earlier. So Kiki is our trailer. It's a flower trailer that we invested in, in 2021 that really allowed us the space and freedom to go out and meet all of the people who had been supporting us and who wanted to support us. She is a four by eight camper, a teardrop camper. And we got her wrapped in the Norwich Botanica logo. And for pretty much, I guess, from almost all of 2021, we popped up every Friday at all these different locations like Little Tart Bake Shop, Con Leche, Flora Fauna, our good friends at Flora Fauna, our really good friends at the Victorian had, had a new plant shop in East Atlanta, Plants and Coffee. They allowed us to pop up and 
all these people, also Evergreen Butcher and Baker, all of these businesses are, you know, Atlanta small businesses who didn't charge us any rent or anything like that. They didn't take a percent of our sales. They just allowed us to, to keep all of the, the revenue so that we could be where we are now in our own physical brick and mortar. It's really heartening to see that sort of camaraderie in the restaurant community. They're amazing. And and that's something that, you know, I had a, a bumped heads last year with a restaurateur, a local restaurateur. And I was, in my experience, the restaurant industry has been amazing, you know, and not just the restaurant industry, but many of the small businesses, because many of them are small businesses and they have this passion for food and for bringing people together. And we really share that in common. I read that Nourish Botanica also creates wreaths, flower crowns, and bouquets for <laughs> weddings. What other plans do you have for the nursery greenhouse side of the establishment? Although those are pretty ambitious to start. Oh, it, it may seem ambitious, but honestly, it's so much fun. And we do them in class format. So really, you guys are doing all the work. <laughs> I'm, I'm just leading it and allowing a place for creative expression and providing the product. When we actually do build a greenhouse, the greenhouse itself will be mostly a dining room. We're still trying to figure out with my, my team of architects, figure out how to, to use it as both. And there'll be days when we can, because the restaurant is not going to be operational seven days a week. So within the greenhouse, we're going to definitely be nursing all kinds of my hope <laughs> is to, nour to nourish and nurture as many tropical plants as possible. So we're, we're trying to figure that out and wor work on whether or not we, you know, nur nurture them in the summer, in the spring, and then bring them inside for the winter. But we really want to, I'm in a location where there's three schools, there's a YMCA, there's a library, there's a park. I'm like right in the heart of Joyland. Joyland is in South Atlanta, by the way, it's near Lakewood. And my hope is to do a lot of programming with the children in our greenhouse and nursery. That's my biggest goal. And seniors as well. I know the cornerstone of your business is to provide a space for civic engagement and education around food equity and economic justice. It sounds like what you just mentioned is part of that goal. Are there other plans involved with that goal? Yes, definitely. One of the main things that I think is key to being a, a Black woman founder and an entrepreneur is to stay stable and balanced. So with that being said, we have so many different parts of our business. And at the core of it is this need for amplifying food and economic justice warriors, which, you know, I've, I've done that for seven to eight years with Chop It Up ATL on a much smaller scale. So essentially what Nourish Botanica will do is continue to do that exact same work, but on a bigger scale where we'll be able to have, a, we have a space now. So instead of doing a dinner party once every two months, you know, for 30 people, you know, focusing on food justice or food justice organizers, because there would be panels that we would do. Now we can do them maybe weekly, you know, <laughs> they can be larger. There are so many organizations here that are doing the good work that we want to talk about. And a lot of them are, they're not necessarily nonprofits. You know, that was an issue for me when I was trying to get funding and attention for myself 
that there is a lot of funding for nonprofits and I don't want to be a nonprofit. <laughs> so there are a lot of organizations who are doing amazing work and we need them. You know, we, there's, a, there's a lot of pieces to this approach. It's a holistic system of, of damage. How do we amplify each of them without making them fit into a box that they don't necessarily want to be in right now? Maybe in a year or two, they might want to be a nonprofit. Maybe they can, but they, it's up to them to self-determine how they would like to, to, to make a change. And we trust that these organizations know their own communities. And we want to make sure that all we do is provide the space for them to tell their story. And that's what Nourish Botanica is going to continue to do just on a larger scale. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the Atlanta artist and entrepreneur Kiana Upton. Kiana, you mentioned hashtag chop it up ATL. <laughs> For those who aren't familiar, would you explain that and also nourish in black those initiatives? Sure. The way I say it is Nourish Botanica basically ate all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> Nourish that Botanica sounds did. like a little shop of horrors to me. <laughs> Which was one of my favorite movies. Of course. <laughs> Nourish Botanica is the culmination of what happens when a Black artist is experimental and she is using her artistry to to tell the story of food and gathering people. So I started with Arbitrary Living. Arbitrary Living was where I was doing retail and vintage pop-ups and, and I was creating markets for other small creators, women mostly, to sell and market their items. From there, I ended up getting a space with Central Atlanta Progress for their Sweet Auburn pop-up. And it was on Martin Luther King Street. I was very, very, very inspired. And that was where Chop It Up ATL was born. Chop It Up ATL is where we had conversations over food in a very artful, creative atmosphere that was about food justice, focusing on different food justice organizers like Jay Olu, who is now at the City of Atlanta, and Gangsters to Growers, Umi Feeds, did that for seven years or so, five, six, seven years. Fast forward to 2020, and I changed the name to Nourish in Black because I wanted to center Blackness in my work in a more public way, in a more intentional way. So Nourish in Black really is Chop It Up ATL. And then COVID hit, <laughs> and you know everything blew up. So I, I was doing this you know, these event planning, it was a business that I was doing. I started as, you know, my own thing, doing it my, for myself. And then companies and organizations around Atlanta began to hire me to help them tell their food justice stories, because there are a lot of organizations here that work in food access and they, they wanted someone to help them with, you know, food justice, a little bit different. What is the difference? Would you mind explaining it's nuanced? It's, it's I mean, everyone, I guess, has their own way. Food sovereignty is the new way of saying food justice, which means that Black people can self-determine, Black and brown people can self-determine where they get their food from, what is considered healthy to them, how much they get to make off of it. They get to own and be, be a part of the food system and the food chain. So the food system, there's five parts of the food system. Some people say four, some people say five. I believe there's five. Production is the first part, which is farming, processing it, you know, getting it ready to go out to the grocery stores 
distribution is where it's at the grocery stores and also restaurants, et cetera. Then there's consumption. That's when the consumer actually puts it in their mouth, consumes it. The yummy part. <laughs> the yummy part. And then there's waste, food waste. Our, our goal is to be, you know, making the impact right there at distribution and consumption. Yes, food justice is, is more of when, at, at all those parts I just said, black and brown people can have ownership in those parts because we're, we're the ones that are mostly food insecure in America anyway. (laughs) Please tell us about your choice of location for Nourish Botanica. Why was it important to you to open the enterprise in a predominantly black neighborhood? It's always been my my dream. Even when I had arbitrary living, I used to pray. I would say, God, please put me in a neighborhood where I, where I am needed. I think that everyone has their own different wants and everyone's visions are important. For me, I needed to be in a place where when I was a young girl, if I saw someone like me opening a business, I would have been like, oh my God, I would be there every day. And I was, I remember there was a record store and it was a, a black owned record store, I mean, not, not records, but like CDs mm-hmm. <laughs> in my community. And I would go there every day after school just because I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, I deeply feel that that representation is extremely important. And South Atlanta, you know, I have, I have done my research, a lot of research before I decided to pick which neighborhood because I saw what happened with the Beltline. And I started looking at, I've been looking for years at where it was going and what happened when it went and, you know, how the neighborhoods changed. And I saw at the time I saw South Atlanta was going to be next. So for my personal economic livelihood, I thought that it was going to be a wise investment. And for the community, I knew that I would be able to, I'm a person that you can trust with helping to, to sort of stem some of the gentrification as much as you can, right? And one of the ways that I wanted to do it was by presence. You know, what happens is I'll, I'll never forget when I was living in Old Fourth Ward and the Beltline came and Pond City Market was coming and you go in there and it's cute. Don't get me wrong. I love Pond City Market. I think it's really cute for me. But as a person that's, I'm not from Atlanta, but as a person that's from Atlanta, if you're from Atlanta, or when I was living in South Florida, most of those stores, they're not black owned and they're not, it doesn't feel like you're, it's not, it's not a welcoming feeling when you go in there. It's not, you don't see representation of yourself. It's not like they built those stores for the neighborhood of the people who were originally there. They built it to attract and to accommodate the new people, you know? And I wanted to, for our business to make the people who are already here feel welcome. I want people who are here and I've already met so many neighbors because <laughs> I've been painting and doing everything on my own. Well, with lots of volunteers, not on my own. And some of the community members actually came out to help me. So I've already, you know, met so many people and the, all the kids and, and that's what I want. I think that that kind of makes you feel what's going to happen is, well, cause we've seen it happen. South Atlanta, this whole area, I'm 0.5 miles away from the Beltline. So I'm just the first, it's going to be 10, 15, 20 more of cool businesses or whatever else people with dreams, but people who don't understand what they're doing, those people are going to feel unwelcome. And they're going to, they're going to get pushed out, not just in a, a financial way, but just in the in a human way. So my interest was to try to make sure that people felt a part of the community still, even as it changed. Atlanta artist and entrepreneur Kiana Upton. Her cafe, Nourish Botanica, opens this spring. You can find more information on our website, 
wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear from the new artistic director of Spivey Hall, Katie Lehman, plus vegan Valentine's Day tips from Pinky Cole. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.